Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Great to see you. I know some of you got to meet David yesterday um, at our event over at our ministry space. Uh, For those that are uh, new with us, again, welcome. Uh, We are in this series, uh, which I'll connect the dots a little bit more to in a moment, called The Jesus uh, I Thought I Knew. And we're just re-exploring and looking at the Gospels and the life of Jesus and the way the Gospels surprise us. And as it turned out, um, we had David on the calendar for a little bit, an opportunity for him to come and share with us and fit so nice and neatly into our series. David, um, gosh, I never even know how to introduce you because I have all this emotional, personal emotional like stuff connected in with you. Double ENFP. Um, (laughs) And so I'll say this, David just is an incredibly accomplished uh, thinker and writer. He wrote a book called A War of Loves, um, and I want to just encourage you to pick that up if you haven't already, and not just pick it up and kind of look at it, but like actually pick it up and read it and hear his story uh, in more detail. Um, but David uh, is an incredible gift to the church, and you will hear why in just a moment. So I'm just going to leave it at that. How about that? It's great. Is that all right? All right. I, I, I think it's hard because, you know, Andrew has such a beautiful passion for this kind of story and question that will pop out. But I think it's just, yeah, it's great to be with a brother that is so supportive. So thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Can we please give a massive, as much as we can muster at New England, warm welcome for David Bennett. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And there's always that bit of false humility in you when you get clapped and you're like, it's Jesus. But yes, it is Jesus. <laughs> uh, look, I am just so thrilled to be here. I love that I'm in like a Lutheran building with like a charismatic evangelical church that has Anglican liturgy. Feel right at home. <laughs> um, yeah, so I originally come from Sydney, Australia, and I grew up as uh, as a young kind of 14-year-old in, you know, the second largest gay capital in the world, Glory. And uh, <laughs> I was also going to conservative evangelical school, an Anglican school, and was raised in an agnostic atheist home. So that just gives you a frame for, like, my background, where I come from. And I'm a millennial, so I was, like, woke before woke was woke. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I was <laughs> processing a lot of those kind of culture war issues, um, coming to the, the realization that I was exclusively attracted to men at the age of 14. And I think it's really hard at that age to res- wrestle with that question. And this morning when we were in prayer, the, ver- the verses from Revelation 12 about overcoming the Satan, overcoming the enemy with the word of our testimony, the blood of the lamb. That's where where most churches stop, right? Just there, (laughs) nice and comfortable. It's all grace, we don't have to die. But actually, the end of that verse it says, and they loved not their life as to shrink from death. And I think for me as a young 14 year old, I didn't see that element in the church. 
So as a gay or queer person, same-sex attracted, we're all one, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I, I felt like I couldn't see the sacrifice in the church that would mean that I could give my sacrifice, if that makes sense. Because it was so upper middle class and cushy and comfortable and kind of idolatrous, actually. So Jesus had no power to me. He was just a cardboard cartoon cut out in a good news Bible. There was no charismatic Holy Ghost fire. There was no, like, oppressed church speaking about actually knowing Jesus in real time. It was just this, like, shell that was used for conservative politics or liberal politics. And why would I give my life to that kind of God? And I, what I talked about yesterday in the teaching was how the question of sexuality is actually primarily what is called a suffering or mystery mystery question. It's, not, it's, it's a question of how could God be good if he gave me the di these desires, does nothing to change them, and then condemns me for them under his law. And what Paul is doing in that Romans 2 passage is he's defending people who are in these theodicy or these suffering mystery situations and saying, don't you judge them because <laughs> you do the same things. You're actually also not righteous <laughs> under the law. And we're going to talk about that later. But I didn't know any of that. To me, it was just an empty religion of moralism that condemned me. And so I was in a park at the age of 14 with my Russian Orthodox boyfriend because I have alternative taste. And, um, <laughs> and uh, in the middle of our very lovely romantic picnic, he says to me, David, um, I need to share something with you. you there's actually a desire in you that I can't satisfy. And he pulls this cross out of his bag and he puts the cross into my hand and I'm like, what is he doing? And he says to me, David, you need this. He's not a Christian. And he was like trying to grapple with this whole scenario of my crazy longings and desires that he knew as a created being he couldn't satisfy, you know. My boyfriend was evangelizing me, <laughs> and so and he wasn't even a Christian. <laughs> and so, of course, my response back was, how could you give me a symbol of our oppression as LGBTQI plus people, as a gift? To how could you give this to me, Vladimir? And he's like, whoa, okay. You know, like, have you read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Romans 1 and Leviticus 18? and 1 Timothy 2 about women. Have you read it all? It's so oppressive. This horrible Bible and this horrible faith. Blah, 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 and went on this rant. And he stopped me by kissing me in this moment, so romantic. <laughs> and I think often more conservative style Christians think, oh, there's nothing ever good in gay relationships. No, there's so much good in gay relationships, actually. And God is quite present in all of our relationships, no matter the brokennesses in them. And in this moment, uh, as we were kissing, I felt very loved by him. But I couldn't understand what he was pointing me to because I was too controlled by the problem of self-rejection. And I actually think at the heart of every human issue, but particularly these, these like suffering and mystery questions, is the problem of self-rejection. And Henry Nouwen um, talks about this 
uh, he says the enemy of the spiritual life is not power and money. If we could get that quote up, it'd be great. Um, power, money, popularity, but it's self-rejection. And at the heart of the problem of sin is actually not rebellion from God or taking extreme politically, political ideological views that actually don't really align with God's view, will. <laughs> the real problem is that you, we feel rejected. We think, we believe the lie that because we have sinned and transgressed that God could never love us. And that's the trap that the enemy wants us to live in. He wants to, us to I, wrap our identities around the lie of self-rejection. But the truth of God in Jesus Christ is that he comes down, and this is, we know that God loves us, that he laid down his life for us. And that's another quote, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> that there is this other truth, this gospel, that comes into the mystery of that theodicy problem. Of that, of, of that suffering that you didn't cause, but you're somehow part of. And when Jesus is confronted with the question, he doesn't say, oh, there's a moral law and you're out of it, bye. <laughs> oh, you're blind, well, tough, just suck it up. He says, no, you're this way so that the glory of God can be revealed. But again, because I was controlled by self-rejection and I was also wounded by the church, which often, unlike its Lord, sounded like the friends of Job, rather than becoming Job with me. And I wish I knew more Christians that would come alongside me and be Job with me, who had brought their suffering issues or their crosses to God and said, can you come and suffer with me? let's suffer together so that the glory of God can be revealed. That wasn't a message. Because there was a false view of human flourishing. So fast forward from this point, I ended up going to a psychic. She told me that I was destined to become a child of the light and to, to become a, a Jesus follower. And I had all of these amazing moments where God reached in, you know, to my life showing me grace, showing me love. God never stopped. But I couldn't see it because I was controlled by the sociological factor of the church's rejection, but also my own inner, inner struggle to know the love of God, of the God that doesn't answer why often, a little bit, but not completely, but comes with me in the suffering and wrestles with me, has a co-presence in my suffering. And... So I end up kind of becoming part of the extreme left in Sydney and becoming a strong nihilist French existentialist, as you do. <laughs> Sounds very Providence-like, actually. <laughs> I went to the pizza shop, and there was a guy like, you know, and Roland, Roland Barthes. And I was like, no, it's actually Bart, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> and he was like, you know, the death of the author, and like talking about that next to our pizza table. I was like, wow, hey, Providence. <laughs> That's like my teenage years, right? <laughs> right here. Um, and I became very much ensconced in this French postmodern kind of genesis of the world we're living in now with queer theory and everything. But I, I kept feeling this spiritual hunger coming back to me and it, it kept haunting me. And finally I, 
I ended up at the Christmas lunch table with my uncle, who was a Pentecostal, cisgender, heterosexual lawyer. So he had absolutely no intersectional capital. And so I was ready to destroy my cultural enemy. <laughs> like, you know, woke doesn't have love your enemies. It just has destroy your enemies. <laughs> and so does some conservative, you know, side as well. But anyway, so I was ready to destroy him. And I said, well, you, he mentions God. And I said, well, you Christians think there's an absolute truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And you can't even communicate truth with language, let alone talk about God. I mean, it's ridiculous. You're just deluded. And look at all the suffering you've caused the world. You've done nothing good to help anybody. Please be quiet. And he said, well, David, there is a few th problems with what you just said. You just said there's no absolute truth. That's an absolute truth. And you just communicated that with language. So you just doubly contradicted yourself. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm queer, I'm here, and I'm fabulous. <laughs> and I win. <laughs> and stormed out of the room very unconvincingly. And in the moment that I'm swimming out of the room, he says to me, David, the problem is that you think the truth is a concept in your head. The truth is a person. And I don't claim to know that person perfectly, but I know that his name is Jesus Christ. I was like, whatever, <laughs> but I really like that answer. And he had a prophetic vision as I left the room that I would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, saved in three months' time. Three months later, I end up in a pub in the gay quarter of Sydney, and there's a young filmmaker there. And she didn't really know the Bible. She didn't really even study the question of homosexuality. But she knew that the answer to her own suffering was the love of God. And I just love that God chose this evangelist for me that didn't even really have much of a biblical education, but knew by faith what the answer to suffering and mystery was. And in the midst of our date, kind of detente about the question of God, and she told me that it was God that inspired her to put her film into the largest short film competition in the world and become a finalist, which I was absolutely amazed by. And she asked me this one question, have you experienced the love of God? And it's so simple, but it was everything. And I think with all these questions we have as humanity, there's only one solution. Different suffering, diverse glories, but one savior, one gospel, one baptism. And so she says, can I pray for you? And I said, I'm a good agnostic, like, good luck. I don't think anything is gonna happen, hon. And as she launches into the Christian prayer of the century, the blood of Jesus. Every dark force leave in Jesus' name. I'm like, wow, spicy. <laughs> and I kind of adopted her prayer style. Um, as she's praying for me, I just feel this tingling sensation on the top of my head, like a wind hovering over me, and then oil being poured out over my head. And then this voice said, do you want me? Three times. It was like the most romantic thing I've ever heard. It was like someone proposing marriage to me. And in that moment, I just couldn't resist, and I said yes. And as that happened, I, like in 2 Corinthians, I saw a veil over my heart and then a pinprick of light coming into the innermost part of my being and this veil being lifted like in 2 Corinthians 3. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, the veil is taken away. And 
I heard this voice say, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And it was like this tug of war between darkness and light. And in that tug of war, I just remember like having the mind of an atheist, anti-Christian, gay activist, <laughs> but the heart of a born-again, spirit-filled believer <laughs> in an instant. You should try that sometime. <laughs> a few people from that community here <laughs> know that tension. <laughs> It's a crazy tension. And I heard that that voice, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And it was like a thud in my stomach, like, do I really have to deal with that stupid Bible? Like, I just wish it wasn't the Christian God. Like, I'm so exhausted. I don't want to deal with the self-rejection issues. I don't want to, I just, uh. And yet this God was real. I knew this God was real. So I ended up saying yes. And in this moment, it was like the most unconvinced yes you've ever heard in your life. Like, okay, kinda. <laughs> Probably a Providence yes, you know. <laughs> like a Northern American <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the love of God was just poured out on me, and my body was burning, and it was like fire. And Jesus says in the Gospels, I will salt you with fire. I know exactly what that means. Like, it felt like I had salt in my soul and all these wounds and these sinful things that had damaged my soul were just being expunged, and this beautiful, like, shalom peace was, like, filling my whole body, my whole soul, my whole spirit. It was just incredible inner work of the spirit. And I went home, and my mom was waiting up. Now, my mom is an opera singer, so that's where I got the dramatic flair. And, um, and, she, and she had said to me, like, she'd become a born-again Christian two or three years before this, and I'd said, choose between the delusion in your head and your real son standing right in front of you. And that's often the question, that's often what the progressive queer world says, is like, choose between God and me. But I think that's a false choice, even though I wanted her to say me, of course. Um, so I was going to have to eat my words, so I walk in to the front room of the house and she's got the light on. And this is exactly three months as my uncle had prophesied. And she was waiting on this prophetic word. And I walk in and she says to me, David, David, is everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, mm. hi mom. She's like, oh, you're back early. Like, have you broken up with someone? Like, what's happened? It's like, well, I, um, I just think I've, but like David from Schitt's Creek. I just think I, mm, well, think, like vomiting in my mouth, become a, a Christian. Hallelujah. I knew he was the God of the impossible. Like, oh my gosh, who are you? Like, have I walked into Harry Potter? The prophecy's been fulfilled. And I'm like, okay. And I was like, uh-huh, mm, prophecy, wow, mm, that's, that's spicy, I suppose. And then, like, she's like, but I made a covenant with God that if he saved you, that I know he's the God of the impossible because, well, David, you're impossible to save. And now I'm going to give him my whole life, and I'm his servant. And, blah, blah. and it's like, Mom, can just calm it down. Like, whoa, you knew about this? She's like, yeah, your uncle had a prophetic vision when you had that debate, and so it's, it's, it's all being fulfilled. Three months' time, he saw that this was going to happen, and we've all been waiting upon the Lord. And I'm like... What is this divine conspiracy? <laughs> and so I go to the film competition and I look at a star in the sky and I'm like, God, 
And all my queer friends have been like, this is wish fulfillment, this is nature, dude, like, this happens all the time, it's just like, you know, you want a beloved, so you've made a heavenly one, but it doesn't really exist, so just like, chill man, and I'm like, no, it's real, and it's a free gift, and it, it comes to you, and like, it's not by works, it's by grace, and I like, knew the gospel so well, and I was giving my sushi rolls to homeless people, it's really deep transformation in my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> A lot of sushi was given to homeless people in that month, and, um, and whatever it looks like for you. Um, and, and I go to the film competition, and I look at a star in the sky, and I'm like, all right, God, if you're real, like, I'm an atheist gay activist. Like, I'm an, you got to show up with a rational sign. I can't just have these hyper-mystical experiences. I started speaking in tongues in my sleep. I thought I was part of a cult. But I was really part of the church. I didn't even know what that was. And I looked at the star in the sky, I said, okay, show up, give me a sign. Otherwise, I'm, show up or I show out, end of story. So she wins the film competition. I run down to the red carpet, Kate Blanchett's there, Jeffrey Rush is there. I'm like, oh, wow. God knew exactly how to woo me. And <laughs> she walks over to me like Audrey Hepburn 2.0, and I'm like, hello. <laughs> and she says, David, all night, God has been bugging me to tell you that he exists, and you just need to know that. And I just like floated home over the domain of Sydney, Australia, where the film competition was, with like 50,000 people going home. And she told me, you're, you're going to come to church with me on Sunday. And I was like, no, I'm not. Yes, I am. <laughs> and I walked into the church, and it was the same church as my mom, my aunt, and my uncle. And the presence of God that I experienced in that church was like a hundred times stronger than the pub. And for six months, I just wept. I couldn't remember anything the preacher said. <laughs> and the first thing the Holy Spirit said to me is, worshiping God is like kissing God. And I, was, I became completely lovesick for God, completely in love. And yet so many Christians around me couldn't understand that. There was only a handful, even in a Pentecostal church, that really got it. And I was like this weird alien. They're like, oh, that David Bennett guy <laughs> who's always got his hands up because he feels the power. Um, <laughs> but I think this morning what I really want to like, invite you into isn't just a sermon on sexuality or all these questions. It's to become that lovesick person that's willing to like, lay down your life for your beloved. So I'm going to invite Andrew up now, and we're going to do some invite time. But invite time, some interview time, and invite time. <laughs> uh, but before I do that, I might just pray over us. Father God, thank you for the anointing that you put on my life of the knowledge of the love of God and the fear of the Lord. And I just pray, impart that right now, Jesus, to every person in this room, particularly those who have those difficult struggles, God. You know everyone. Let them see that they are crosses that bring glory, that you are not a cruel God that hates them, but you're a loving Father that wants them to participate in your Son's glory through the Spirit. So Spirit of God, Spirit of glory, fall upon this church. And as it says in your word, Lord, those who participate in the fellowship of your sufferings will receive that Spirit of glory it will come upon them. And so, Lord, come upon all those, every person in this room, and break down every wall in their heart 
that has been built by suffering without faith. And add faith to it, God. Add the revelation of your love to it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just sitting here going, I don't really want to come up. <laughs> but let's sit for a second. Sit. I don't know what it will. I want to I lock in what just happened, my senses, for some people. And it's a, a phrase I love that like I stole from, I don't even remember who. There's something probably happening in your heart that doesn't make a lot of sense in your head. <laughs> and if that sense of like, <laughs> that sense of like, in just hearing David's story, any way in which you're feeling just touched by the love of God right now, um, whatever it means to hold fast to that, I want to invite you to do that. Something that we've been uh, mentioning throughout this series is was a sort of a revelation that I've had a number of times. <laughs> Feels like when I read through the Gospels, and forgive me, I know I've said this so many times here. So I have this regular rhythm of just over and over, no matter what else I'm reading, daily office or devotional or whatever else, I'm just, if I'm going to be an apprentice of Jesus, I should probably just like become a, like a master like of of the gospels should know them and every time i go i think it's important to say that like i've read through them so many times and studied commentaries and and just like dug as deep as i could dig over the years and every time i'm always surprised mm. at just how um in like open-armed right to use like a, a a complicated word in this day and age but inclusive he is mm. and then also how exclusive he is there is this like deep invitation to holiness and a way of being in the world. And then there is this like throwing the doors wide open. So if you're new with us, um, you may be wondering like, all right, wh what did I exactly walk into <laughs> first? Which I love. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Keep but Providence I, weird. Keep <laughs> Providence weird. And sorry, I told him as we were walking around, I got to tell this story now. <laughs> I got to tell do it. it do Last it. night. <laughs> Hold that thought while I jump over here. ENFP, woo. <laughs> yeah, they're used to hearing me preach. So last night, uh, David, uh, some of the, the you know, work he's doing, or as a professor, you were, you were working with around classical liberalism and, and just Rhode Island being the birthplace of so much of that, of like being a really open culture. And Roger Williams, right? You've heard of Roger Williams? He like looks over our city with his hand out over it. And the first thing he said when we talked about him coming out was, I need to see everything Roger Williams. I need to put my hand on his grave and pray that like, <laughs> do people know that the birthplace of how we think about our political system and our way of being in this country was from an evangelical uh, Puritan yes. preacher. Like that's how this started. The first Baptist church is right there. And he's like, I need, I need to... And he just soaked that in. So anyway, we go, why am I telling this story? We go up to Prospect Park, looking out over the city. There's water fire happening. So it's already sort of spooky and someone's playing yeah. drums. And, and then we notice there's a bunch of like small groups, subgroups that are all sitting up there in the park. 
I'm like, what is going on? These like prayer gatherings? No, there's like ghost tours. <laughs> and so David being, um, th- this is not like David being the gay man that he is. This is David being the like chaotic, neutral, chaotic good. charismatic, chaotic good. Yeah. like that he is. <laughs> As we're sitting there praying over the city, he just turns as a ghost group goes by, uh, and he just goes, it's the Holy Ghost. <laughs> you need the Holy you Ghost. You don't want to like, come ghost. find the Holy Ghost. <laughs> and the he's holy trolling <laughs> multiple groups as we're walking around the city. Trolling. Like, you don't need that. I'm like, suddenly David becomes like a, just, I don't know, like a Southern Baptist from 60 years ago, like flaming, like pushing against Halloween. It was amazing. It just was amazing. And the reason I told that story is because the, I got nothing. No transition. <laughs> Day, <laughs> wow. It's just too good. Too good not to tell. For those that are new to our church, um, <laughs> I want um, to, to, uh, to share something about how we um, hold, um, because this is how the church has held this understanding of sexuality. Marriage between a man and a woman is, is what God has instituted for all sorts of many reasons that we're not going to get into theologically today. And so it, I mentioned that just like point blank and clearly for all those coming through the door, not so you like, for the, so, so for the folks that lean um, like in biblical orthodoxy and are rooted in biblical orthodoxy, go few, though I, I do want you to say few, like rooted in biblical orthodoxy. But I, I share that because this is um, the, 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 the wildness of our Savior, who in Romans, and I want to just invite you to do your bit on Romans to unpack that for a minute, we see in the life of Jesus and the life of the faith radical holiness on one side. I want all of you. And then we see radical inclusion on the other. Give it to us. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really interesting because I was, I suppose... When you're walking with Jesus, you trust him, and then it takes a while for you to really understand scripture. In fact, it took me about, I'm still learning, I mean, but really understand it. Like, what is going on? Where are we? How do I locate myself? What are these weird wheels within wheels and eyes on angels that don't look like classical angels, but look like something out of a Babylonian, you know, (laughs) court scene? Yeah, right right up there. Above you, <laughs> it's a good rec- maybe replica of the eyes. Um, you know all of that stuff, and you ju- you just don't understand it. And it takes time, and it takes theological patience. And we live in a culture that has no theological pa- patience, and it also has the erotic imagination of a pea. But that's something else we'll talk about. Um, and I'm just I find it so boring. It's like oh sex. I'm like okay great thanks. Wow what an achievement. Um, and I don't want to like poo-poo the culture, but I also do a little bit because that's spicy and we're providence and we keep things real. But it's like, I started to encounter a vision of my beloved. And then I started to read the gospels. And then I started to see that Jesus was in Paul. And then I started to be able to trust Paul's epistles in a way that I couldn't before because of everything I mentioned in my testimony. And I think it takes a long time to get to, not just to the threshold where you believe, but also to the threshold which is even higher of faith, which is I'm willing to give God anything and die. And Thomas Cramner talks about, who's an Oxford reformer, 
And I think he would have been quite pleased with Roger Williams in some ways. And he said, this is a summation of his theological anthropology. He says, what the heart desires, the will wants, and the mind justifies. What the heart desires, the will wants, and the mind justifies. Until you get to a level where your heart believes, you will not accept what Scripture teaches. You will continue to find your own twisted explanation. And that is true on progressive and conservative sides. To actually let God speak to you is a scary thing, even though it's not scary, <laughs> even though God is loving, because of all the issues I mentioned. And so it takes time to let God speak into these intimate areas of our sexuality, our gender, our human makeup. So I had to get to that other threshold of faith to actually say, God, my money is yours, my body is yours, my sexual identity is yours, my gender identity is yours, everything is yours. <laughs> it's yours, 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 and anything that gets in the way, bye-bye. Anything that gets in the way of the Holy Spirit, goodbye. And then once I'd finally got to that stage, I still didn't really understand the Bible. And so I was sitting in... Oxford in Regent's Park College, the Baptist College of Oxford, and I was reading all the different like theorists on Paul. And I suddenly read this like contextual paragraph about how there was this emperor called Emperor Claudius and how he kicked all the Jews out of Rome because they were arguing about Gentile inclusion, like had the Gentiles now been included and no longer need to be circumcised. And then I re read Romans. Now, there's a tradition of revivalists reading Romans in Oxford that completely changed the world, and I didn't even know that. And there I am in Oxford doing the same thing and getting blasted by the Holy Spirit. And what God revealed to me is that Paul was writing Romans 1 where he talks about same-sex activity, and we're not talking about pagan temples necessarily. We're just talking about any same-sex act, because there's the priapic model which was a top-down power-based sexuality, but there's also the erotic model, which is a mutualist, like marriage-based kind of romantic model of gay sex in the, old, in, 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 in the first century. So the idea that that doesn't exist is just like a furphy. It's a really, really bad liberal argument. I think the liberal argument that is more pastoral is much more compelling, and I, I have more time for that. But biblically, bye-bye. Um, <laughs> Just know, every Pauline scholar says, yeah, it says that, it's every same-sex act, it's clear in the law, this is like Jewish, hello, and they just say, well, the Jews were wrong and Paul was wrong, and I think gay marriage is fine, or they say, no, it's not, and they stick with the traditional view. It's that simple, people. It's not hard. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just have to say that. And I'm so sick of that on Instagram, I can't even begin. <laughs> and so, I mean, that might be really heavy for you, but I'm not, it isn't heavy because of what I'm about to say. Paul writes this beautiful, elegant theology of the law in Romans 1, which his enemies are using to exclude the Gentiles. Paul doesn't disagree with that. In Romans 2, he says it's true. Yes. But he disagrees with the way that the law is being used. What he is saying in Romans 1 to 3 is the law is not an excuse to condemn. It's not a license to condemn, because none of us have the right to do that. So he is actually defending queer people. He's actually defending actually all of us because none of us are righteous under the law. But particularly the groups that were seen as unkosher, like eunuchs and gender and sexual minorities that were seen as unnatural by both the Jewish and Greek or Roman worlds. 
And so we see this like incredible defense, which is a lot like Jesus. In fact, I would say it probably is just Jesus zapping through Paul and using his humanity and his sassiness and his rhetorical skills to defend the Gentiles, to defend gay people, to defend every group that doesn't quite chime with the temple system and to say they now do because I have completed the law. And he's rebuking his enemies that would want to condemn and put gay people like myself under the law. And he's saying, no, now a greater righteousness has come where they can now be part of the covenant of God. And then he finishes that whole section with a huge rebuke where he says to those legalists who are trying to like tear up the church, he's saying, you who do this, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name has been blasphemed because of self-righteous Christians among the LGBTQI plus community. And we're here this morning to crush that. But we're also here to crush a different thing that is just as evil, which is to say that grace is a license to sin. Both are true. The law is not a license to condemn, but grace is not a license to sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I was just in Germany, he's like the one faithful Christian we remember. The rest of the German church sucked. <laughs> and to be honest, a lot of the American church just sucks just as much. We all suck a lot, okay? Let's just admit it. On race, on all sorts of questions. We need help. Jesus, take the wheel. And what I love is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the most incredible text on discipleship where he said, if you do not have the holy standard, not just of the law, but of an inner transformation of the spirit, which is an even greater righteousness, Jesus says, you must have a greater righteousness than the righteousness of the Pharisees. How is that possible? I cannot produce that. You can't produce that. It's Jesus's righteousness that produces grace that is not cheap. Grace that calls us to live into radical holiness. And for gay people, that looks really variable. Like, it can look like a mixed orientation marriage, which is where one spouse is, you know, a little fabulous, and the other spouse is also fabulous, but, you know, doesn't have that particular spiciness. And so, you know, and that's really hard pastorally, you know, to, then that needs a lot of support, and it's usually only in about 15 to 20% of cases of Psi B Christians, Christians who agree with the biblical view of marriage, but not through the law, but through grace. So what we live as Psi B Christians is grace-wrought obedience, not law-wrought obedience, not the fake one, the real one that comes from knowing yourself loved, comes from giving yourself as a gift. And, you know, Paul says, We've been bought at a price, not to do what we want with our bodies, but to use our bodies to honor God, to worship God, to offer our bodies up as living sacrifices. And so this is a message for straight people to say, if you're not living in that, please repent. Because if you are not, you are crushing the queer community. Your lack of holiness, your lack of wanting to be set apart, your lukewarmness, I just want to spit it out of my mouth with Jesus. It is not okay. Like, rise up. Give Jesus, the one who loves you with everything, everything. Like, stop trying to not die. Please die in the spirit. 
<laughs> Can we please die? I don't want to hear your little grave clothes, like little progressives, conservative sermon. I don't care. Die. That's my message this morning. That's my challenge. And I'm not putting that on the queer people. If you're side A, I get it. It's freaking hard. But straight people, come on. Don't be that like self-righteous little progressive ally. I'm so over it. I have to go before the throne of Jesus Christ, and I have to give an account for what I've done with my body, and you're going to tell me that your really bad exegesis of Scripture is enough for me to depend on. You want me to go before the Holy One of Israel and say, yeah, well, I just listened to this person and they said it was fine. You want to twist the Word of God to make it easy for me. Anathema. Anathema to both. There is actually only one option, and that option is radical discipleship. It's the life of Jesus who waits at the center of radical inclusion. I've been radically included through justification by faith and radical holiness. And that's where Jesus lives. That's the real gospel, and it's awesome. And yeah, and then there's celibacy, and there's so many single people in the church, and they're constantly suffering because straight people won't die. Just, I'm putting it there because it needs to be there. You know, and I'm saying that because actually straight people do want to die. They just don't know how. It's like, come on, let's do it together. Let's do it as one body. We're going to die and be raised. We're going to see that glory break in. We're not going to, like, struggle to lift our hands on a Sunday. I mean, come on. That's, like, the first step. Die so that you can be raised. That's it. And then... (laughs) We get to Isaiah 56, just to finish, and then we can lead into a response time. <laughs> Lit up right now. <laughs> um, there was one category in the Old Testament. I used to think, God, I really love the New Testament because I can see all this grace and this inclusion, but like, what about Old Testament? And this is 600 years before Jesus came. And Jesus was a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. The first person that was included in the people of God outside the Semitic people groups was an Ethiopian eunuch, a Gentile and a eunuch. That's a lot of intersectional glory. And he became the father of a whole continent that now has the most Christians in the world. Thank you. So if you think being celibate isn't going to bring fruitfulness, oh, just you wait. And uh, (laughs) this is what the Lord says. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters, better than even having kids, better than the thing you lack because your desire doesn't align with the created order. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. I am only excluded from one created good so that I can be more radically included in its eventual transformation. That I have received the name better than sons and daughters, and that God invites every person that wrestles with these questions that name. When has the church offered that lately? Being stuck in a stupid culture war that just keeps bringing death to both sides. It's time to repent. It's time to receive the name better than sons and daughters. And it's time to also live Christian marriages that are on fire and about dying and being raised, not about holding on to that created good in an idolatrous way. So there's a challenge for all of us this morning. We come back to Revelation 12. 
Do you know the blood of Jesus? Do you know what Jesus did for you? Have you fallen in love? Are you lovesick? Are you lovesick and therefore you want to share your testimony with the whole world and just can't help but talk about who you're in love with? That's all evangelism is. That's all prophecy is, really, actually, as well. (laughs) Just being in love, 1 Corinthians 13. And are you so in love that you would just give your life? If someone put a gun to your head and said, renounce Jesus, you're like, I can't. He's my lover. He's my everything. If you ended up in bed with someone, you said, I can't sleep with you because I'm married or I'm committed to my lover in celibacy. Would you give that? If you fit into all three, or one, or two, we'll probably all do fit into all three, but if there's one that's really on your heart, please come forward. And if you're part of the queer community and you're like, David, that was spicy, I really like that, but like, I don't know, man, that's a lot. Or you just wrestle with that in your life. One of my dear friends, Colton Beach, who um, works for Revoice, he's gonna come up the front. He's got the kind of sharp haircut you'll recognize him. And you can come and pray with him like another queer person, so it's not always just a straight person praying for you. <laughs> um, we love that, but we also need that. And so if that's you, please come up. I mean, if you're not out, um, maybe speak to us later and you don't wanna like publicly <laughs> come out, then I understand that too. Please don't feel like you have to do that. Um, yeah, Andrew, over to you. I'm getting caught up. I live, I live in that. That's, that's it, yep. <laughs> there was a call there for all of us. A call to surrender. I was thinking about the connection there of like, you need, you need all of us to die. All of us yep. in this community. We need each other to die. Yep. Because when we do that, we become, our homes open up. I was like thinking of all the practical implications. Like when we die, our homes open up. When we, when, we, when we die, our wallets open up. When we die, we start leading with grace, not gossip. When we die, we become like for each other in the way that Christ is for us. When we die, we embody another way. I keep thinking of the famous letter, Diagnetus' letter, where he, he's trying to help another Roman official make sense of these weird Christians. And he says, I don't get it. They open their homes to everyone which was so strange, but they don't open their beds to everyone. Radical inclusion, radical holiness. Stepping in and trusting that God's way is the best way. And so if this is a moment for you where you're like, I don't know the language, like recommit, say yes to Jesus all over again. You know, in some of the revivals, which is something we sense coming in our city, there were often like spiritual leaders that were established in the church, like elders who suddenly realized they really didn't know the love of God. And it was like, run it again. Like, I need to repent all over again. Just say yes to him all over again. Just say, Lord, I want you here and in my life. I sense your love and I just want to open my heart up to that and say yes, Lord, again to that love. And so we're going to take the next 10 minutes or six hours. We'll see what happens. And to yeah. open our hearts. And I just, I just sense in the spirit, God wants to open a well in this church. He just wants to open a well of revelation of the love of God. So Jesus, open the well, God. Strike the rock. 
Let the water pour forth right now, God. Let the living waters flow in this place, God. Let every rock and every twig and every source that of hard-heartedness go in Jesus' name. And just let your river run wild in this place, God. Let the life of the living God flood this city, God, in this church and in all the churches, but Lord, let it happen in this church. There'd be an, a well, a well that's so deep in the joy of God because we're dead and <laughs> the new creation can come. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Spring up a well, O God. Spring up a well, O God. Spring up a well, O God. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the heavens open in this place, God. Let the fire of the living God, let the baptism of grace come upon us afresh, the baptism of your love, that we be lovesick, lovesick for you, living our lives longing for this future that's coming, God, this future that's coming. Thank you, Jesus. Let it spring up in this place. Living water, living water, let it spring up in this place. Living water, your living water, let it spring up in this place. Oh, yeah, let it come. Let it come, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. So we come to prayer as we come to the altar. Just let that water wash over us afresh this morning. Let it saturate us in the inner place. As we give ourselves up to you, let the living waters saturate us afresh. Let every bit of functional naturalism be crushed. Every bit of unbelief go. Every dark cloud, every heavy blanket, let it be lifted, God. Let the lightness of your face shine upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.